So I'm honored to say uh, welcome to Insight, Daniel Ellsberg. Thank you for having me, yes. Uh, before we talk about Iran, can we go back to 1971 and briefly remind people how you ignited the political firestorm uh, in revealing how war planning for the conflict in Vietnam involved deceiving the public? Well, the Pentagon Papers were a study actually compiled at the Pentagon, not at RAND. They were being stored at RAND when I copied them. And I was doing research on them there for the government when I copied them from the Senate. They ended, it was a study that began in 1945 in, in time, it covered that as a period from 45 to 1968. And my copy actually was done in 69 under a new president, Nixon. So from that point of view, these were just historical documents. So the most recent of them were a year old, but some of them went back uh, more than 20 years. And as such, they couldn't prove what I felt sure to be true, namely that Nixon was following in the footsteps of his four presidential predecessors, that he was deceiving the public in much the same way as, as they had done in terms of what he planned to do, uh, what his aims were, what the likely costs and the risks were, uh, the prospects of what he was doing, which amounted to staying in Vietnam. By the way, it's my belief right now that there's a very strong parallel. I think that President Bush, in fact, expects and intends us to keep a presence in camps and an armed presence with Iraq indefinitely, and just for the next two years, but as far as he sees it, uh, for the rest of our lifetimes. And yet the public that impression at all. That's very similar to the situation I saw in 69. I say that now, now, about Iraq, not as an insider, but uh, at that time I did have inside information as to people in my comparable positions today. And the question was what I could do to really alert the public to what lay ahead. All I could do then was to show them the pattern of past history and to say that uh, the history was repeating itself. I hoped that would cause people at least to question what they were hearing from the White House. I'm afraid it, it didn't have that big effect. It turns out that current documents are what you need if you're to impugn the uh, in sincerity or the truthfulness of a current president. People want to believe that the president currently at the White House, whether they voted for him or not, they don't want to believe he's lying to them. It takes documents to really convince them, though that's perhaps a little less true than it was 30 years ago. Uh, the Pentagon Papers did change that significantly in that people do understand that presidents lie now. But they find it hard still to imagine that they're being deceived as much as they actually are at the given time. I would like to also remind people that uh, the Nixon White House created the plumbers of Watergate fame to stop leaks. And of course, you were the prime leaker at that time and, and one of the primary targets of the plumbers. 
which gave you an indirect but significant role in Richard Nixon's resignation. I think that's worth mentioning. Well, that's right. It wasn't a, a coincidence. That really didn't uh, come directly out of my leaking the Pentagon Papers, which, as I say, were history and mainly involved the Democrats. In fact, Nixon was, we now know from the tapes, the White House tapes, Nixon was very happy to see the Democrats exposed in their lying and their uh, their escalation. But And he was rather confident, by the way, that it wouldn't rub off on him. And in that, he was more right than I was. Uh, he got away with that. But he did fear that I had documents on his own administration that would show that he was, at the very same time, making nuclear threats to North Vietnam, as he was. And, and as President Bush has been doing openly now to Iran. But uh, in those days, uh, with the Cold War on and people's fear of a, of a worldwide conflagration, when he made threats like that, they had to be secret from the American public, not from their recipients, of course. He was making those secretly directly to uh, Russia and indirectly through uh, North Vietnam. So he was afraid that I would put out documents that would scare the public into realizing what a reckless policy he was really on and cause them to oppose it. For that reason, he had to take measures to shut me up. He sent people into my former psychoanalyst's office to uh, try to find information he could blackmail me with and to silence. And he didn't find that, and he wouldn't have succeeded anyway. He also used these same people to try to neutralize me, to incapacitate me, those were the words used, to incapacitate me totally on the steps of the Pentagon uh, a year later in 1972. And when those same people were caught uh, in a burglary of the Watergate uh, Democratic Party offices, they, uh, they were in danger, Nixon was in danger that they would tell about the earlier crimes that they had done for him, for the White House. So he had to pay them off to keep them silent, and that was involved new crimes of obstruction of justice. When that structure finally was came tumbling down, when John Dean exposed a lot of it, he faced impeachment and had to resign, and that did have an effect, of course, on shortening the war. Daniel Ellsberg, a man we're looking forward to speaking uh, with at great length in the future installment of this program. He was there in the Pentagon when the news of the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident came in. He knew, long before the public would eventually uh, learn, that uh, the whole incident was suspicious and dubious from the get-go. And yes, apparently one of the first missions that the so-called plumbers of Richard Nixon, whose actions at the Watergate led to his uh, eventual uh, leaving office, well, their first job... Go get the dirt on Daniel Ellsberg. Let's break him into his psychiatrist's office. He's been at the crossroads of history on more than one occasion. He's going to be a great guest. Looking forward to it. And I am reminded when he mentions John Dean that we have been fortunate enough to speak to a Mr. Dean more than once and uh, would refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com if you missed that on the first go-round. Or even if you did hear it, John Dean was a great guest. Although to our eternal sorrow, somehow Mr. Millen and I did not have the mic on when, uh, upon mentioning the term conspiracy theory, Dean responded by saying, I only believe in the conspiracy theories that are real. Speaking of real conspiracies, we'd refer you to the whowhatwhy.com website for a piece by James Henry titled, Mind the Credibility Gap, Syria and the History of U.S. War Disinformation. It's a, nice re- it's a nice piece reviewing some of the, the huge lies the public was told to get us involved in conflicts. 
There was one little uh, amusing illustration accompanying the piece I had to like. It was a drawing of George Bush in combat fatigues. And the book title was, What's the Difference Between Vietnam and Iraq? The answer at the bottom was, George W. Bush had a plan to get out of Vietnam. We expect to meet up with Russ Baker in a couple weeks at a conference, and uh, hopefully we'll be bringing him back to the program as well. Did want to note uh, also some pieces in the Sacramento Bee of late. Uh, editorials to the Bee, one titled, Monterey Shale Offers Economic Opportunity. Another was titled, Agriculture is Not Only Our Heritage in the Sacramento Valley, It's Our Future. What do these two pieces have in common? Well, they both paint a sunny portrait of, of the kind of things that, well, you need water for. You need to send lots of water south to do some fracking and to maintain uh, uh, rice growing in, in desert conditions. And yeah, this all circles back to Jerry Brown's effort to stick giant tunnels into the delta and suck more water out of it. We do like to quote people who, uh, who write in, if not to us, to somebody else, and have something meaningful to say. Celeste Romo Folsom wrote the B on this topic a couple weeks ago to say, The Delta is a sensitive ecosystem that provides life to hundreds, even thousands of species of flora and fauna. The state hasn't completed environmental reviews that will tell us the impact of diverting huge amounts of water from the Sacramento River. I suspect it will be an ecological disaster that may not be apparent at once, but 10, 20, even 50 years down the road, we will look back at the decision and wonder, why did we allow this to happen? Of course, the answer to that is money. And I do note with some sadness that uh, water meters have come to my neighborhood, or at least uh, the drilling to connect up the water sources to the houses is being uh, done all around my neighborhood. We will soon get meters that will bill us for water. The upshot of this, as water prices go up, people will use less. This will mean more water in the reservoirs, which can then be diverted elsewhere. I know the people that don't want to save water are well-intentioned, but this certainly calls to mind the old saying about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Meanwhile, I've learned that... Uh, various sources that uh, up in the foothills where they're growing a lot of, of vineyards in the San Andreas area, they're just pumping like there's no tomorrow and water tables are dropping. The same thing's happening down uh, in Fresno where uh, to meet agricultural needs, they're just sinking wells right and left. Peace in the Bee by Gosia Wozniaka about this from, from September 8th. Notes that uh, the city of Fresno is having to dig deeper wells as the region's aquifer has become depleted. We are perched on the edge of an ecological disaster related to water. People will come to live in California because we have a pleasant climate. Part of the reason we have a, such a pleasant climate is that it doesn't rain and snow very much, unless you're way high up in the mountains. And as a consequence of not raining and snowing very much, we just don't have that much water to go around. Anyway, I, w I want to backtrack into the, uh, in, in the matter of the Giants game. Whenever you, you attend an event of which, which generates news, it's always curious to see how it gets covered. And in doing so, you learn things you wouldn't have known otherwise, like that uh, Hunter Pence, the guy I was talking about, apparently played every game this season, and he's the first Giants player to do so since Alvin Dark in 1954. But I noted that not mentioned in the text was the fact that uh, one of the San Diego Padres smacked a grand slam in the game. Certainly the, the largest single blow struck by either team 
and uh, and it that that didn't get mentioned because <laughs> he's he's a padre. Something also not mentioned in the coverage, although it was mentioned uh, elsewhere, not on the sporting pages, was the fact that uh, the father of the young man who was stabbed to death. I guess he was a Dodger fan, and uh, who there was a big fight going on, and. Uh, he sustained a mortal injury. The father of the young man was there asking for people who witnessed it and apparently were filming it to come forward so that they can help solve the crime. Got me thinking that, you know, it's fun to go to a ball game and mindlessly root for your guys versus the other guys. But, you know, when it gets down to where, you know, being a fan for one team or the other promotes fist fights and, and murder, man, that is out of control. But I guess that explains why we're all wanded with metal detectors as we went into the game. Sad that we've come to this, isn't it? But this did remind me of a strange piece I've been sitting on from, uh, from The Week magazine, July 26th of this year. A piece about bull riding in Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, they call it a corrida, which means a run. You're familiar with those over in Spain, but down in Central America, it's a rodeo. And among the events are what... It's called a bullfight, and this kind of really is a bullfight. People do try to ride the bulls in Costa Rica, but apparently there's some bulls down there that uh, have thrown people off and killed them. The Costa Ricans, in a sort of a spirit of um, fair play, I guess, uh, don't punish the bulls. They think that's part of the spectacle. That's part of the event. Uh, You know, bulls will kill people, and the reigning terror down there is one they call mala crianza, which loosely translates in English as badass. There is apparently only one rule in Costa Rican uh, bull riding, and though the bull may kill you, no one kills the bull. In what's described as their rustic style, it's not a timed event. The riders are not judged by any artificial set of standards. An announcer down there noted that the public serves as the judge. You can tell when the bull wins or when a rider wins. This correspondent does plan to visit Costa Rica again in the not-too-distant future, and I'm going to have to do some first-hand investigating of... uh, what is they're doing down there? This, this sounds curious. And no, Mr. McMillan, I am not going to try and ride a Costa Rican bull. Aww. I've got a fascinating medical article I do want to talk about, but I think we shall defer that to segment three and close out this, uh, this segment by taking a turn into the, well, miscellaneous, I guess you'd say. In my neighborhood, there's a local publication. A newspaper that comes out, I guess, on a monthly basis is titled Inside East Sacramento. And in fact, in reading uh, this magazine, I, we first uncovered Ted Robinson, who's been on the show a couple of times in this exact magazine, a piece about him. But this time around, a rather more mundane article by Walt Seifert caught my eye, which I will quote from. Renting a car this June in Berlin tested my rusty shifting skills. It also served as a reminder of how common manual transmissions are in Europe and how rare they are now in the United States. It used to be different. Although I learned to drive on my father's automatic Chevy Bel Air, the first car I owned was a VW Bug with four on the floor. Back then, almost half the cars in the U.S. had manual transmissions. The proportion of manuals in cars sold in this country has declined steadily for more than half century. It went down from 20% of cars 20 years ago to less than 5% a few years ago. Demand is so low that more than 80% of car models don't even offer manuals as an option. Europe provides a sharp contrast. On the continent, a sizable majority, 75% of cars, have stick shifts. Noted Mr. Seifert, there are good reasons to know how to drive a car with a manual transmission. Manual skills can get you out of a pinch in an emergency 
when a manual is the only option or might be needed when taking a foreign trip. Apparently, Car and Driver Magazine's taken up this cause in its Save the Manuals campaign. He notes that for those who are interested in saving money, manuals cost less to buy, usually more than $1,000 less than an automatic. Being simpler, they're less expensive to maintain. They usually, but not always, get better gas mileage. And of course, many drivers, and yours truly is certainly among them, will testify to the fact that manual transmissions offer more control and fun. Mr. McMillan disagrees with me on this, but of course, he'd rather be driven. That would be chauffeured. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I learned to drive on an old jalopy we had out in the ranch, a 1928 flatbed Ford. And although I admit they are a bit of a handful sometimes on a steep San Francisco hill, which certainly gets your adrenaline up, it's just more fun to drive a manual. Walt Seifert in the article notes that another safety advantage of a manual is that uh, in a car with an automatic, if the gas pedal sticks, you could quickly accelerate into serious trouble. And we talked in the show not so long ago about remotely controlling an automobile and the theoretical possibility of hurting or killing someone by doing so. And well, call me a little paranoid, but you know, I just like the idea that you know, with a manual transmission, such a, such a stunt would be harder to pull off. Okay, for the record, I've changed my mind. Because of that reason, I'll start driving a manual. You know, that's why we love doing this show. You present a good argument sometimes, and people are convinced. On that note, let's take a much-needed break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.